Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network Literary Studies channel. I'm your host, Britt Edelin, and I have a really special guest here today. We have Cassandra Falk, a professor of English literature at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. Um, And today we're going to be talking about her book, The Phenomenology of Love and Reading, which is out through Bloomsbury. Um, before we begin talking about that, just a little information about Cassandra. Um, in addition to phenomenology and literature, she has published on romanticism and working class studies. She has forthcoming collections on romanticism and the wilderness, on violence and literature, and is currently working on a monograph about the reader as a witness in contemporary global, global novels. Um, so join me in welcoming Cassandra Falk. Thank you so much, Brett. Glad to be here. Um, so today we're going to be talking about um, the phenomenology of love and reading. This is a really special little episode for me because I've told this to you, but I actually read this book for my undergraduate thesis, um, and it really formed a backbone or a foundation for those studies. Um, and before we get deep into it, uh, I just want to ask about your background, um, how you came to literary studies, how you came to English literary studies, as well as how you came to writing this book. Yeah, I did. uh, I did my PhD in York, and I focused on working class autobiography in the Romantic period. Um, So a subject I was fascinated in, because this is the first literate generation of the working class, but completely different than the phenomenological work um, I went on to do. While I was still working on my PhD, I did an edited collection about Christianity and literary theory, both looking at the at the history of the engagement, especially with hermeneutics and also some stuff that was, was going on then in 2010. And Kevin Hart was one of the contributors. Um, and he was full of, sort of wisdom about these uh, French theorists who were totally new to me. So it very much sent me down a, a rabbit hole of, of reading. And I read a lot of Marion's work. Um, and when I got to the erotic phenomenon, um, I was totally convinced by it. Uh, so I've come to phenomenology a bit illegitimately. My, my background training is all in, is all in English literature um, but I think the sense of, and we'll probably talk about this more later, but I think the, the sense of wonder, um, that phenomenologists try to preserve is something, um, that I think one finds so, so readily in works of literature that they, that they have a nice harmony between them. Yeah. That's something I noticed when reading this book. It's, it's totally like a, a, a way to describe what every person who reads, how they feel when they read. Um, and you put it into such clear words. And I think that's something that's so exciting to say that 
this is how I feel. Um, and this is exactly what is going through, or not exactly what's going through my mind, but when I sit down and think about it, it makes a lot of intuitive sense. Um, so you just mentioned a few terms, um, phenomenology and Marion, which is um, a reference to Jean-Luc Marion, um, who's the main piece of your thesis or the main thinker of your work. Um, and I'm wondering, before we get closer into Marion's writings, can you kind of give us a background of phenomenology, um, perhaps starting with its origins um, in Husserl, and as it was kind of taken up by other thinkers, um, especially ones doing literary work specifically? Sure, yeah. Um, so in the first decades of the 20th century, uh, Husserl, a German, a German thinker, became frustrated with the gap between what he saw as our experience of real life and the kind of scientific language that was brought to explain that, whether that was uh, metaphysical categorical language from philosophy or more uh, psychological language, which was on the rise at the time. He didn't feel like um, anything got close to the lived experience of the world as we encounter it. So he tried to isolate the way that we experience the world as its own object of of study. Um, so this involves a process that he calls bracketing, where you sort of set aside, you, you bracket off all of the preconceptions that we normally bring to the way we understand the world, the conceptual apparatus that we fall back on so readily, the sense that the world is over there and we're over here perceiving it and that, that big subject object distinction. He said, if you just, if you just set that aside and try and think about the processes through which uh, the world gives itself to us and we receive it, what do you have left? And, and what kind of language can we use to describe that? So in working through those ideas, which became the foundation for phenomenology, he articulated concepts like intentionality and intuition um, and the reduction, which is sort of that process of of bracketing. Um, and he initiated this whole philosophical discourse that was prominent throughout the 20th century. Um, there's a lot of a lot of steps in this process. So I'm going to, I'm skipping loads when I, when I say this, but the next step people usually go to is, is Heidegger, who was interested in understanding what might be called being um, behind the experience of givenness, sort of things that, um, something that, that underlies both our experience of the world and the world itself being given and therefore that facilitates our understanding of the world without limiting it in a, in a conceptual way. And Heidegger wrote for years and years and worked right through the war and his ideas, um, his ideas, his, his interest changed somewhat. And later in his career, he becomes much more interested in language and art as a way of shaping world perception. Um, but his, his big idea is, is being. So when Marion talks about the ontological reduction um, and wants to move beyond that, it's Heidegger that he seeks to move beyond. Um, and I think that the next step that I'd want to mention in phenomenology itself, um, well, two, Merleau-Ponty makes a 
a breakthrough that's so important for thinking about art phenomenologically because he focuses on perception as a messy process that for all of Heidegger's ambition to clarify it and render it scientific, it remains muddled and, and altogether too much at, at one time. And I think that's an idea that, that Marion goes on to, to pick up and, and develop. And Levinas is um, the other person who probably can't be left out here, um, who gives us foundational ideas about the way that we perceive other people, um, not just as part of the world, but as this really unique, continuously giving encounter that we can really never never get our head around. Um, so, the, you know, German, German and French thinkers uh, working in the 20th century, um, as early as the 20s, you've seen people like Roman Ingarden trying to shape a phenomenology of aesthetics. Um, Gadamer also in the 50s working with what interpretation looks like, hermeneutics. Um, but phenomenology and literature really become sort of a movement in the 60s and 70s with the, the Constance School. And there are you know, names that you've, you've heard of, you know, Wolfgang, Wolfgang Eiser, Hans Robert Jaus, um, critics who are interested in the way a work of literature shapes our expectations during the process of reading and then overturns those expectations. And what do those structures look like? Thank you for that. That's a great overview of the phenomenological um, history of philosophy. Um, so something that immediately comes out in your text is that while you're looking at phenomenology and literature, you have a really specific um, phenomenologist in mind, and we've brought this name up a few times, um, Marion, Jean-Luc Marion, um, who has this amazing body of work that I've I've started to dive into upon reading um, your book. Um, can you kind of give a little um, introduction to his thinking, um, especially, I guess, what separates him from the other phenomenologists uh, on the basis of love, and maybe a little bit about the erotic reduction and saturation, which is the topic you open the book with. Yeah, so I, I was thinking about this question of what what makes Marion so valuable for um, a phenomenology of, of literature. And I think part of it is that it's the kind of, he has Merleau-Ponty's, appreciation for the messiness of of givenness the kind of all at onceness of our becoming within the world and the world's revealing itself to us um, but he also has a kind of uh conceptual rigor uh, that for me anyway makes his concepts a little bit easier to work with analytically than than Merleau-Ponty's. Merleau-Ponty is a wonderfully uh, poetic writer, but for that reason, he's not often defining concepts that, that you can then take to an experience and use to provide a, a phenomenological description, whereas Marion does. And I think the the, fir, the, the two most important concepts um, are the two that you mentioned. So the first of those is the saturated phenomenon, which is probably what he's most famous for. 
most phenomenologists have been interested in the poverty of what's called intuition. So there's this sense of the way we perceive in a kind of give and take with the world. We turn our attention to something, you know, a book on the table, the car driving by, a bird, whatever. Um, And in that intention uh, is our conceptual apparatus, our mood affects us, the, the moment in which it takes place, all sorts of things affect that kind of intentionality, that kind of attention. And then what the thing that we're trying to perceive or the concept we're trying to perceive gives back is called intuition by phenomenologists. And you can, you can intend concepts as well as things, um, most, well, almost always what we're really receiving is not a, an object, but the event of, of seeing it. And I think that's where Marion's ideas are so valuable because prior to him, um, phenomenologists working with intentionality, uh, they look at those instances where we turn our attention to an object and what is given back to us, the intuition is inadequate somehow. So um, you return to the place you're you're from um, and you realize that some of the, the magic you think it it had um, is sort of is sort of gone now and you try and you try and recapture that or just a practical example you you look at something and you can only see one side of it you can't see the the whole thing so in some ways what we're looking for um, when we look at an object or encounter you know an old country road or whatever um, it's never it's often not quite fulfilled but Marion flips that on its head and he, he is interested in those phenomena in which what's given to us, is more than we can take in. Um, so he calls that saturated phenomena because it saturates and overwhelms our intentionality. And he privileges several kinds of saturated phenomena, our experience of our own flesh, our own bodies, our experience of the other people, which I mentioned with Levinas, our experience of a work of art and the event. And as he writes beyond his sort of trilogy about saturated phenomenality. I think the event comes to be more and more an underlying phenomenon for all of those, um, for, for him. And I think that attention to event quality distinguishes him from a lot of phenomenologists that went beforehand, before him. And because reading is always an event and not a text as, as object, um, I think that's a really valuable concept. The other, the other concept that when, when I read his, his book, it just struck me as, as yes, this is, this is how it is. I just, I believed him. I mean, his, his account of this just matched up with my understanding of the world in a really profound way. And the book's called, um, the erotic phenomenon. And there he articulates what he calls the erotic reduction. And he says, you know, he's trained as a Cartesian. So he's written a load of books on Descartes. And he says, you know, Descartes offers what he calls the epistemological reduction. So an interest in knowing as a way of understanding ourselves. 
you know, I think, I think therefore I am. He calls that epistemological reduction. And a lot of people read that way. Um, and then he jumps forward to Heidegger and he says, there's also, you know, an ontological reduction. I am, and I'm aware of being, therefore I am. But he says there's something unsatisfying about both of those and that neither of them account for our desire to get up again tomorrow morning. Neither of them account for our desire to continue being in the world. They can't give us purpose. He says, what gives us purpose is the longing to love and be loved, which for him is not a sentimental, emotional phenomenon. It's the base that shapes who we are. We cannot say, I, we can't speak of ourselves ontologically prior to our becoming through love. Um, and I can say more about that if you're if you're interested. But that reorientation of that is the basis of of who we are and why being and knowledge matter radically reshapes the way we approach literature. I, I think so. When I read that book, I thought, okay, I'm a I'm a literature professor. What does this reduction, if I accept it, do to change? my profession and my everyday reading and teaching practice. And that, that was the question that motivated the book. Yeah. You have a line um, in the book where I'm going to quote it in full because it, I was completely like the wind knocked out of me when I read it, but you write Marion's response, therefore to Descartes formulation, I think therefore I am, or the phenomenological, I am aware of my own being and becoming, therefore I am is I love, therefore I am. I love, therefore I want to continue to be. I love and am loved. Or at the very least, I live in the awareness of the absence and hope of love, and therefore my being matters. And I, I mean, that was just, I was blown away. It's such an incredible concept um, that does, as you said, it, it grounds some kind of a meaning or this, a reason to continue and to wake up and to do the next day. Um, and I'm wondering if you can, before we get deeper into the literary chapters, if you can say a little bit about what you go on to talk about with the idea that reading prepares us or practices or, or lets us practice or trains us for love and how a book or a text um, can be an perhaps object is not the right word in a phenomenological context, but can be the other to whom I, with whom I can um, be in a loving relationship with. Yeah. So this was the, this was the central question. You know, a, a book obviously is not um, a, a lover. It's disembodied. It has no power for me. It cannot intend me. Um, and yet there's this fascinating way in which reading, especially in a novel, um, the speaking consciousness of the narrator becomes entwined with my own consciousness, or if that's both too weak and too strong. Um, it speaks somehow within my consciousness, but as something I have no control over, I can't tell where it's going. I can't tell what ideas it'll give me for the for the future or, or how it'll make me feel or how it'll stir up old memories. And in that way, it's like the confrontation with another person. 
So Mar- when Marion's explaining the erotic reduction, um, he doesn't conceptualize it with a definition that's ontologically stable. So he doesn't say this is, you know, the erotic reduction as if there were only sort of one, one way. It's always, it's always an event. It's never complete. And it always involves another person. So he articulates it like a conversation. He says, you know, at the beginning, when knowledge and beingness become dissatisfying for us, we ask, does anyone out there love me? Um, because that that would make life worth living if they if they did. Um, and he says, you know, we 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 seek for that, um, and we realize to that the extent to which um, our meaningful existence is dependent on on other people. And he he backs that up by talking about how you know, we we wouldn't be here as as adults had we not been cared for as as children, and we wouldn't have the confidence with which to speak to one another as intellectuals had someone not recognized some potential and and encouraged it in us. So we become who we are through love, and love is, is prior to us becoming. But then he says it it can't be this dependent. I mean, we are dependent on, on other people, but if we wait for someone else to love us before we love them, then we've, we've curtailed love's possibility in processes of exchange. And he said, that's not how love works. Sometimes you find yourself loving someone and you have to provide reasons for it it after it's not like you you decide oh i'm going to fall in love with that with that person um what you have to ask yourself is can i love first can i take that risk can i open myself to that um and he says there's a final step in this conversation and that is um the realization you loved me first and that you might be the person that we've decided to love or, well, allowed ourselves to love, or it might be someone else. But had we not been loved, we wouldn't be here. So we, we realize again that um, we, we return to the first sort of stage of that conversation, but with a, a recognition and a kind of gratitude for that dependence. And if you think about reading literature, it can take us two thirds of the way. Um, I think literature offers an opportunity for us to get used to not being in control, get used to being overwhelmed, to open ourselves up to being changed by what seems to us almost like another consciousness um, without knowing what the nature of that change is going to be. So um, we have to be able to say to a book in a way, um, can I love first in insofar as love means letting the other influence and shape us in, in unpredictable ways. But it's also significant that we can't go that last step with a book. So I, I think it's important too that thinking about reading through the erotic reduction sort of propels us back into the real world of enfleshed people. You can't just read a book and sort of think positive humanitarian thoughts about yourself and what a moral person you are because you read something sad. Um, it, it In order to complete um, the erotic reduction, we're propelled back to real people. Yeah, I think that was such a great explanation. I think something that I was really intrigued by was I guess the idea of being 
radically open to this otherness that is a text. Um, and that whenever you come to a book, there's always, you're opening yourself up to it. You don't know, especially if it's a new book, it's something that you don't have control over. Like, I don't know what's going to be happening in the novel. And I think even almost more beautifully, I would say, was would be that after you've read a book so many times, I think I've read, like, for example, um, To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf 10 times in my life. But every time I read it, there's something new that happens because I'm a different person every time I read it. And I think that Marion and you get at this idea of kind of being open and accepting that what's going to come is what's going to come, but I don't have this complete control over it. And I think that really defines an experience of reading. Um, and now I, I think we can move more so into these, into your, the second half of your book, which is on um, three different acts or three different modes of reading um, or what we kind of open up ourselves to when we read. And the first one is empathy. And I loved this section. Um, it reminded me, you quoted James Baldwin in your introduction, and um, it reminded me this whole section of this quote he has from an interview with Life magazine where he says, on the, on the good quality of reading, I guess, um, where he says, you think your pain and your heartbreak are pres unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read and you, you realize that um, it was Dostoevsky and Dickens who taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive or whoever had been alive. Um, and I think this quote of his speaks directly to this idea of empathy and that when you read, you're giving yourself over to another person um, and you, you can feel with others. So I'm wondering if you can talk about how you approached empathy as a subject um, that you wanted to get out of Marion. And kind of the other, you mentioned two approaches to empathy that you don't think gather it enough, gather it in a way that, that actually solves the problem of reading. So I'm wondering if you can just kind of talk about that. First of all, I love that you, um, I love that you cited Wolf. Um, and I love that you quoted James, James Baldwin. I mean, those are both two authors who, for me, um, capture the kind of, um, the sense that we cannot capture uh, even mm -hmm. what happens in a, in a, a single day. So I think they're both wonderful uh, authors to think about in terms, in relation to phenomenology. Um, so empathy, in order to think empathy phenomenologically, we have to somehow get out of the subject object distinction. We have to somehow get out of this unit directional tendency that that empathy has been caught up in in a long time which is that i the privileged subject in whatever capacity privileged and that um i know where i stand in relation to a situation or in that i'm not the one in danger or i'm not the one hurting um and i extend empathy to the other, you know, someone who is, is somehow um, below me and a beneficiary of that empathy. But that's problematic in a couple ways. I mean, it's, it's problematic in that it reinstates the subject-object dichotomy that phenomenology tries to get rid of. And it's 
ethically problematic in that it hierarchicalizes a relationship between two people instead of recognizing that that any time two people are present together, that is the opportunity for an event of love. And Marion uses the word eros because he thinks it has punch, that, that love has lost, but he doesn't mean you know, romantic attraction or, or, well, he includes that, but he says, Every kind of of love is brought forth as a new possibility by the two people standing there facing each other. And it's made possible in that moment. And there's a way in which it's happened so many times before, like Baldwin says, but there's also a way in which the love created by those two people will be totally new. So, you know, friendship, expressing concern, all sorts of things fall into his general category of love. And if I am tempted to extend empathy to another person and in that process circumscribe them as something less than the person who could give me back to myself through an act of love as only the receiver of my generosity or or empathy, um, then I've limited the saturated phenomena that that person is and that that moment was. So empathy instead has to be something that two people can do together. So if I am with someone and we look at a thing together. We look at a situation together, even if that other person is mute or if I'm mute in that, in that process, if there's a kind of mutual recognition that we're trying to um, see the problem that that person is facing together and seek a solution for it. That seeing together is is a kind of phenomenological empathy um, that puts the two people involved in an equal and interdependent space of perceiving simultaneously and perceiving in a way that that couldn't have happened had that other person not been there. Um, so, you know, a poet like Wordsworth writes wonderfully about, about this. I mean, it's a very painful poem called Surprised by Joy, where he, he sees something, he sees something lovely and he wants to tell his daughter about it. His daughter's died. Um, and that, that sense that we see something in a unique way because we see it as we would have seen it with the other person, even if they're not there in that, in that moment, that's empathetic intentionality. And I think books foster empathetic intentionality because they help us, I mean, see things in a new way is the sort of pedestrian way to, way to say it, but it's true. Um, that if we read uh, To the Lighthouse, um, we perceive everything from uh, stand to painting to drawing rooms to, I mean, so, so many things. Um, differently for having read that that book and just like someone else's means of perception can can come upon us you know the the absent other someone who's who's died or who's far away that can come upon us without us looking for it the way a book has taught us to see can can come on us like that and it's it's because they they operate i think through a very similar kind of kind of empathetic process now when we're faced with a, another person 
Susanna Keen writes about this and they're, you know, maybe they have immediate demands that need to be met. Um, sometimes the fact that we can fulfill that need or cannot fulfill that need distracts us from that possibility of, of empathetic perceiving. And it, it makes us feel that we're above, you know, someone in a hierarchy, or if we're the one in need, it makes us feel that we're lower in a hierarchy. And that, that distracts from that, that moment of love. It, it could have been, even if an ethical need is, you know, immediate material need is, is met. So I think that's mm, anything that anything that reinstates that gap, subject object gap, and objectifies a person. Anything that reinscribes that hierarchy is is problematic. What you were just talking about with um, Wordsworth and with looking at something with the lover, um, it reminded me. I'm not sure where I heard this. It was. It could have very easily been like a Hallmark card, but. Um, the, the defining of love as not only or not just looking into someone else's eyes, but looking at something next to someone and you're both looking at the same thing. Um, and I think that's what books do, as novels and poems. It's, it's looking at something with someone else. Um, and it's, it's such a, it's a very profound feeling of love to kind of enter into that space and you write, you, you begin a discussion of empathy in literature with a little case study on Anne Michaels's Fugitive Pieces. Um, and I, I can let you explain it a little more, but you come to a conclusion about um, what might become the reader's injunction in the text, which is a quote from the book where um, a character named Ben says, it was my responsibility to imagine who they might be. Um, and you, you mentioned that this evocation could have been spoken by Levinas. And I think that it gets at the heart of what empathy is. And I'm wondering if you could talk about more about the empathetic responsibility of, of readers in, a, in an erotic um, type of reading or what you would call a charitable reading. Yeah, so I just taught fugitive pieces with my, with my literary theory class. I just so love, oh, I so love that book. Um, and Ben, in that moment, is thinking about people who have died in the Holocaust, and he is aware um, that he'll never capture their stories, that even if he were face-to-face with a survivor in that moment, his parents were both, both survivors, um, there's so much about not just their experience during the war, but the way that that experience shaped everything that came after it, that he'll never understand. And yet he says, it's my responsibility to try. If I see a picture, um, you know, if you, if you go to Budapest and you see that very, uh, moving monument, that's, um, bronze cast shoes, uh, beside the, the river where um, Jews were, were shot and dumped into the river, um, you know, shoes retain the patterns of the people that walked in them. So some of the shoes, uh, small shoes next to adult shoes, um, shoes that are sort of standing even and perfect and facing their, their fate and others where one is sort of crinkled beside the other. And you see, you know, the nerve and the anticipation of, of 
pain and there's no names. There's no accounting for, for who these people are or what their faces were. But I think what, what Michaels is saying in that passage with, with Ben and what an empathic intentionality couched in the erotic reduction would command us to do is to, to try and to recognize that we're failing, but to try. And there's a preservation. I almost, there's, there's a preservation of the human possibility for love that was denied those people in their last moments in that process of, of memorialization. And it's never enough. It's not, it's not factually or objectively adequate. It doesn't do the dead any good. Um, but it's that recognition recognition is is too weak it's that it's that sense that something precious that should have been addressable and responsible and loving as well as beloved um was cut short um so i think you know i, I think fugitive pieces works with those ideas so um so profoundly I yeah, may have been excited about future pieces and wandered away from your question, Brett. <laughs> no, I think that answers it very well. Um, I think it's a, I'm, we can both plug that book. It's so good. Um, and it, I think a lot of um, literature about the Holocaust or the Shoah and um, especially written by those who went through it um, definitely acts as a testament to literature's awareness of empathy or ability for um, empathetic training. Um, And I think one of the things you bring up so pertinently and importantly at the end of the chapter is, and what you're just talking about is the failure of empathy um, or, or the failure of creating empathy or possibly creating empathy in the wrong way. Um, And I'm wondering, can you give us a little, um, can you talk a little bit about that and how reading can train us in the wrong way or, being aware of how reading can't do everything and it can't make us feel things in certain ways. Yeah. I mean, there's a, it's easy to sort of congratulate ourselves um, on some sort of ethical accomplishment when we've, when we've felt something, when we've read. Um, But I think that feeling, um, even if it's a profound attempt at, at identification, um, only is present as potential. I mean, you use the word training. And I think that's, that was really a key idea for me in, in the book, the sense that um, experiencing empathy, you know, being overwhelmed, self-forgetting attention, that those things prepare us in some ways for, for love and real life. Um, but of course, all sorts of people are, are prepared for for things, and then they um, and then they don't show up when the when the day arrives. You know, you can you can train all you want as a as an athlete, mm-hmm. and if you if you don't show up on game day, all that training just benefited you, and it you know it doesn't it doesn't contribute to a sort of effective event. And similarly, I would say, you know, all of that training and, and empathy and being overwhelmed can fail you know when people 
when readers encounter others in the real world. And there's a way in which we can um, feel like feel like reading itself is 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 enough. Um, and that's a trap. Um, and it's it's something that I think actually uh, blocks empathic potential. We also, get, we are in control of reading more than we are in control of another person we're encountering. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a work of literature um, doesn't see us. So it doesn't call us forth into visible being in the way that another person can do. And, and being called forth like that can be extremely uncomfortable. Um, you know, some earlier phenomenological critics write about the, the reading process um, as though uh, a book provides the consciousness for viewing itself as an object. This is George Poulet. And I think that's a really nice idea, but if you, if you, and I I love his, I love his work generally, but if you think about that as, as not about a book, but about a person and that, that presupposes, you know, another, us seeing another person as that person sees him or herself, or that person seeing us as we see ourselves. And that's really not how it goes most of the time. That's, that's why other people have to call us into ourselves through love because they're outside of us and books don't do that. So that, you know, that's a discomfort we have to get used to in real life. Mm -hmm. So I want to move on to the next section, um, which you have on attention. Um, And I think I'd like to just, I want to say that one of my favorite poems, I think speaks directly to this. It's called, it's sometimes by, Mary Oliver, an American um, naturalist poet. Um, And in it, she writes, instructions for living a life, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. And I think I love that the first instruction, like rule number one is to pay attention. And in this chapter, you write, our greatest responsibility is to pay attention. and I just, I think it's such a, an incredible fact of reading that it, it does that. It, it forces us to pay attention. And I want to ask if you can talk a little bit about your two models of attention um, and how literary texts, you quote, you say both receive and direct attention. Um, and they, they do it in such interesting ways. And I, I want to see if you can just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I remember when I was writing this chapter, I was thinking a lot about animals, which which I know you've you've written on. So feel free to to to, to add to this or to correct me. Um, but I was I was thinking about you know I'm I'm a country gal. I'm from a place with a lot of nice forest, and I was thinking about the sense of being in the woods and being uh, the object of something else's attention. Um, where mm-hmm. we might be the the prey, but we don't know what might be looking at us. Um, I walked part of the AT this past summer with my two boys, and someone warned us, "Oh, there's a bear up on the trail ahead." Um, so, all right, fair enough. I've, you know, encountered bears before, but um, 
they're so much stronger and so much quieter and so much more in control than, than we are in the woods. And I knew it was there and I didn't know where, but I knew it would know where I was. And that kind of attention is diffuse and hyper alert and sort of ready for, for anything, but it's not discriminating. And I think there is a way in which reading can, not often, but in some moments, give us that kind of hyper aliveness and alertness. And Wolf actually is an author who does this for me, just the overwhelming sense of everything that's going on around us without being able to recognize what's going to be important for the, for the future um, or what's, what's important in this particular moment, just so much. But there's another kind of attention, which is directed. um, And I recognize this is completely politically incorrect, but I, I wrote that in terms of, you know, hunting, um, not just humans hunting, but, but animals hunting one another. And that's, that's attention that's so focused on um, a singular thing that the rest of our surroundings sort of fade out. And I think, I think literature is very good at cultivating that sort of a attention. I mean, this is why if you're deeply immersed in a book, at least for me, you know, someone has to call my name a couple times before I sort of come to, um, you know, it, and that level of, of attention is so valuable when it comes to, to, to love and responsibility to other people. I think so often that is just what's needed for that event of love to come forth is just for even one of, of the people in a moment of meeting to pay that kind of attention to what might come forth from the other person. But I, I love Mary Oliver's more diffuse statement of that, which is which is more like um, me with a bear in the woods. You know, it's more like that that diffuse kind of of just pay attention to all the things you know you can't keep track of, and then and then tell about it. And it's in that process of filtering what's important um, that reading literature often gains its kind of ethical oomph in public. Um, and you know, we could talk about that later, but that's the project I'm, I'm working on now, how literature directs our attention to stories, um, that should be part of public consciousness, but are not. And it makes us feel those with the immediacy we would feel, um, almost if if someone were right there telling us. Yeah. There's something so powerful about how literature can train us to, see the world in a different way. Um, Virginia Woolf, I mean, I keep bringing her up, but she she's my favorite. She has um, this quote where she talks about how you should read a book. And she says, you should pause every few sentences to like go outside and, and look at the trees or pick the, the petals off a flower. And I think of that in this chapter in that reading a book is not even though sometimes you can get so into it. And I definitely have had those moments where someone has to call my name a few times, but reading can also be something that you do 
and I'm sure it's something you do. It's something I do as a person who studies literature. It's something I do just all day. And I think it really forces me to, to see the world and to always be looking for signs and to always be looking for something to, to just notice. And I think when you do that, you really understand the saturatedness of the world and how there's always something to be that can just deserves our attention. There's nothing that just is like is there and just is completely a nothing. It's, it, I can read everything. And I think that's something that literature specifically has trained me to do. And if I can add to that, I mean, this is why I think phenomenology is so valuable for writing about literature, um, because it doesn't separate who we are as as beings in the mm-hmm. world from who we are as as readers. And I think some forms of of literary theory have that tendency, whereas you know, phenomenology recognizes that all of the sort of mass of our daily lives and the potential of our daily lives is present as we read and before and after and reading is present in those daily lives that we continue to, to live after the, we put the book aside. So I like that sort of enmeshment. Like you talk about going back and forth between the world or the petals and the, and reading. Yeah. It's, it, that's, it's one of my favorite quotes and you know, I wish I, I wish I had the time to <laughs> feel the petals off of a flower as I'm furiously trying to get readings done every day. Um, but now moving into your last chapter um, on being overwhelmed. Um, this was just, it was such a, it's a dense chapter. It's, it's really great. And I think you say a lot of amazing things. And I just want to open this up to you. If you have a way to think about how saturatedness, um, which you mentioned it, it, the saturated phenomena are by definition they exceed our ability to perceive them. I'm wondering if, can you talk a little bit about that and this status of exceeding and being overwhelmed, perhaps in what Mary Oliver might call being astonished, how that relates to literature and what that teaches us and enables us to do as we are not reading in those moments when we're, you know, we've closed the book and we're going about our daily lives. Yeah. So two things. I mean, one is the kind of hermeneutic potential of that. And the other, I think, is just the, just the fact of, of being astonished or dazzled is a word that, that Marion like, likes a lot, being overwhelmed. Um, so, of course, there's a, a play on, on words there, um, the sense that being is inadequate to givenness, with given even in a moment of, of a day, not to speak of a whole day or a, or a whole life, um, that ontology is is ultimately just um, inadequate to the sort of plentitude of that of that givenness. And I think because reading literature is such a concentrated uh, phenomenon in some ways. I mean, Marion likes to talk about this in terms of painting. He says the the painting is like an idol and it offers us so much qualitatively just within the bounds of the frame. And you know, there's nothing beyond it, behind it. There's nothing present other than what you can see. And contrary to, you know, real life where there's sort of the, the, back of the book I'm looking at or whatever. Um, but he says that that concentratedness um, makes 
the the painting he talks about it you know almost like shooting out at us or like that like dazzling us um, and I think books books have that kind of concentrated power too but of course we don't always experience them that way um, and especially if you know you you mentioned you're rushing to to finish your reading when we're when we're reading like that as we so often do in in academia we miss the opportunity to be overwhelmed by the givenness of a book. And we've talked mostly about positive reading experiences, but sometimes the sense of another consciousness that overwhelms you is very uncomfortable. You think about reading the the kindly ones or um yeah, I just taught a half of a yellow sun uh to a, a group of students I'm studying contemporary fiction with. Um, and there's a character there who we get to know as a young teen and we see him grow and develop and he's a wonderful character and he becomes a perpetrator um, during the war. And it's so unpleasant and so necessary to the book because that's how we all of us are, we have the potential for that kind of violence. So I think, you know, sometimes the over overwhelming is, is, is beauty, like, you know, reading Wolf's sentences, Mm -hmm. but sometimes also it's that like uncomfortable awareness of say our violent capacity, like, like I talked about in, in half of a yellow sun or the uncomfortable hopelessness of, of thinking about those shoes and in Budapest, but even, even that, willingness to be overwhelmed which i think reading literature trains us in transfers into into everyday life not just or can not just in training us to attend but also in preparing us to just face the fact that we can't take it all in and that that's not a sign of our inadequacy or a limitation of, of conceptual apparatus to be frustrated with. It's a, it's a gift. It's wonderful. It means we go to the same spot tomorrow. There's more and more to take in. And that, yes, that's the other side of this being overwhelmed and reading. Every time we pick up a new book, you mentioned this to the lighthouse, there's, there's more to discover. There's stuff we missed. And when I, mm-hmm. when I talk about this with my students, as it's not, it's not the infinity that it goes on and on numerically. It's the infinity between zero and one. Because a work of literature sets limits on possible interpretations, but there's an infinite possibility um, for hermeneutics within those limits. And you don't even, there's no way to enumerate those multiple hermeneutic possibilities. We can't even recognize when we're reading in a different way, but every time we read, reread a passage, it's different than the last time we, we read it. And interpretive processes that phenomenology tries to describe, but is aware they just happen too fast. We miss them. They're too much a part of us. They're constantly changing when we encounter new works of literature. So the sort of in finitude of that hermeneutic possibility as part of, of being overwhelmed too. Yeah, that's a great explanation. It reminds me of um, Derrida, Jacques Derrida, who you talk about as he's very influenced by phenomenology. He has in a little writing, or I think an interview about the poetics of Paul Ceylon, he talks about 
I think he says something along the lines of like, imagine if someone kind of said everything you could possibly say about a poem. I mean, he, he says that would be terrifying. And I think one of the things that I love about literature is that, you know, you really can't say everything about a poem. Someone else is always going to have something else to say. Um, and you and I, we could read the exact same poem. It could be five lines and we're going to have different thoughts. And I think there's it's because, as you talk about in your book, that we all carry these histories when we approach a text and nobody else has the same phenomenology as anybody else. And so it really creates these completely infinite um, interpretations. And I think coming together as literary scholars, as people who have read books or as just someone who has read anything, I think that's an exciting encounter. And that's something that happens through love and love enables. Um, and I just I just want to bring up one last point that I think maybe you'll have a comment on um, that this book, there's something I don't there's not an explicit mention of it in like a chapter or anything. But you you're constantly touching on the fact that reading is an ethical act and it's not ethical or good inherently, as you mentioned, the failures of empathy can happen um, and maybe it can be we can empathize with the wrong person or um immoral act um but that reading can train us ethically and there's something that's always going on because it's us and an other consciousness and I thought that that's a beautiful part of this book that I was I was carrying out or carrying the line through I was trying to think of a way of describing that for both both Marion and Levinas ethics only happens in the moment of relationality so um you, you know law is is another thing and and the sense in which ethics is tied up with law or tied up with you know i mean you know godly law earthly law whatever just law um and the extent to which ethics is tied up with virtue or law is something that precedes the moment of encounter um is a problem for for both of them rather than um a, a positive so mm-hmm. there's a sense of of ethics being enabled by that moment of encounter in a a unique way. And if, you know, if, if I, if someone feeds me because I'm hungry and begging, um, and they do it just to, to make themselves feel better, um, to exercise what they've learned as virtue, to comply with the spiritual law, then they've, instrumentalized me and I you know I put myself in the receiver position there because like so often when we talk about ethics we always you know as literary critics we always take the the high road like we're the ethical person doing the thing and so you know equally we are the, the people receiving receiving ethical acts um so yeah ethics absolutely but both Marion and Levinas are sort of allergic to that to that word because for them it has a sense of of code that predetermines action, whereas the action has to arise up in the moment and it has to be involved um, with how we engage and attend to another person instead of just what they do and and vice versa as we as we receive that. That was a wonderful little excursus. Um, So I have one final question, which is, 
Um, it opens onto a future, much like reading. Um, what are you working on now? What are you thinking about? Um, do you have anything coming out in the future? Um, just tell us, if you can, about what's coming up. Yeah. So you okay? You reminded me of something in, in asking that question when you when you asked me about um, ethical change in the reading process. I remember struggling for a way to formulate that in the book, and what I finally came up with, I said, you know, reading changes us ethically the way rain changes a river. So it's there's something it definitely changes us. That happens. There's no doubt about it. Um, but the manner of that change is only revealed farther downstream after we've mm-hmm. after we've closed the the book. Um, but thinking about thinking about this ethics, interpersonal ethics, um, leads into my next project because I I was pleased to discover upon looking back at this book at your at your prompting that um yeah I, I find the erotic reduction every bit as convincing and wonderful as I did when I you know put the last period in, in in this book. I still I love this idea. But it strikes me that this book and and many well the vast majority of, of books talk about the relationship between ethics and literature work with ethics interpersonally. And I think especially with um, literary criticism involved with ethics and phenomenology, this is how it's going to be because most people go back to Levinas. I went back to Marion. Um, And that's not adequate to ethical life in a globalized world. So now I'm trying to figure out um, how the potential for love in a work of literature that I tried to think through in this book can be broadened out using this idea of the reader as witness. And Marion says in another book being given um, that we're not constituting ego, we're constituted as witness. So there's a kind of passivity and receptivity to our becoming, um, which love is, is an essential and very, very important element of. But of course, there's other things that contribute to who we are Two, and what does it mean to be a witness via a work of literature, especially to instances of historical violence that we cannot intercede in? How does that shape us as responsible for ongoing or future incidents of political violence, especially things that we can't, we're not committing, you know, we're, we're not doing any, um, damage with our own bodies to another body, but that we might be implicated on through, um, national belonging, voting, um, you know, charity or, or a lack thereof, the kind of way we use our public voice or fail to the way we teach other people, all, all of those things that, that implicate us in, in silence, or sometimes the wrong kind of vocalization about you know, big, big problems with, with political violence in the world. So I'm trying to move out from interpersonal ethics and think about that. Well, that sounds like an incredibly rich and um, intense project and definitely one that um, will certainly be, uh, I guess, timely, as, and it will always be timely. It's something that, that sounds like something we will 
always need to read and remember. Um, so that's all I have for today. I want to thank you for being on the show and for giving such an amazing um, explication of your book. And I hope we can have you back when that next book is out. Uh, thank you, Brett. It was a real pleasure to to talk to you. And thank you for being an, an attentive reader and such a, such a kind interviewer. It was wonderful to talk. Well, thank you for listening. Um, once again, that was Cassandra Falk for um, the writing of the phenomenology of love and reading out through Bloomsbury. Um, until next time, that I'm Britt Edelin for the New Books and Literary Studies Network, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you.